0: In a strange and wonderful coincidence, I covered Jim Beheim's first game as head coach at Syracuse 45 years ago. It was the Hall of Fame tip-off classic in Springfield where Syracuse beat Harvard in a blowout. When I read my Boston Globe story to Jim, including his quote about using, get this, more zone, (laughs) he said, who knew? Jim, of course, returned to Springfield 40 years later for his induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame And now he's coaching both his sons, Buddy and Jimmy, which led us to a discussion about name image likeness. We shared memories of the early days of the rollicking Big East when coaches would scream and shout at each other until Dave Gavitt made them play nice. And Jim said he's never seen anything as electrifying as Pearl Washington coming up the court in Madison Square Garden. I'd like to welcome the legendary, occasionally cranky, highly entertaining Jim Beheim, 45 years coaching Syracuse, plus two as the golf coach. Hello, my friend. Hello.
1: I I doubt both those premises, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to start with this because I don't know what reporter, unless it's Hoops Weiss, could say this. I found a story that I did in the Boston Globe. From nineteen seventy-six, when you walloped Harvard at the Hall of Fame tip-off in Springfield. And you said to me, Yes, you were deigning to speak to me then. You said to me, in the second half, we played more zone. That was the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? I, why did it take me so long to, so long to completely
1: understand that I muddled through the next 20 or so years trying to play both so yeah I think the first half we were ahead of the mighty Harvard uh Crimson or whatever I think we were up one and then the second half we won by about 25 and I I think I I mainly discarded the offense we were trying to run did something simple and then we played some zone you
0: remember that you beat the my Husband, Bob Knuth, was a captain of Harvard basketball in 69. Would he have played against you? No. Oh, I see. Uh, 70, you beat them, 73-48. Was that necessary?
1: Well, you know, it it was a one-point game, believe it or not, halftime. So it was my first coaching game. So I was pretty nervous being up one against Harvard. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we, we got going a little bit. And uh, I felt a little bit better after the game than I did at halftime. I didn't feel good at halftime.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I go that far back with you. I think the only thing I missed were the uh, Scranton Miners, which <laughs> Bob Ryan always was disgusted with me that I didn't know the whole Eastern League. But tell me, is there any equivalent? Or Tell me what that was like, and is there an equivalent? It was big, actually, because it was the only – League
1: other than the NBA. The NBA had 12 teams back then. Uh, you know, when I started in the Eastern League in 1967, uh, my first year out, I coached here at Syracuse, went to grad school, but on the weekends I played in Scranton, and there, there were 10 teams in the Eastern League. There were only 12 teams in the NBA. So all the good players, there was no, there was very few went to Europe and there was no G League, nothing like that. So it was 10 teams. you drove down two hours to Scranton, played a game, then you drove three hours to like Wilmington, Delaware, and played a game. Then you drove back to Syracuse Sunday night. You just played Saturday and Sunday, drove back and then you went to work Monday through Friday. and uh, I coached with the varsity freshman team and uh, for five years and then I finally I had to go full time at syracuse at that point so they
0: they didn't put you up at the four seasons
1: i stayed at the hotel casey for 19 dollars a night in scranton <laughs> pennsylvania i had dinner for 345 at a diner near there so my hundred dollars i cleared uh, you know probably 80 bucks a, a, a day you know in, in scranton it was pretty good it was good 160 bucks back then yeah that was a uh,
0: couple of drive-ins.
1: That was a lot of money. <laughs>
0: take me, take me back. I mean, I've got to cover the entire history of the big East, but do you ever think there'll be that kind of collection of big personalities and people who could fight and yet were really close? I mean, didn't, didn't you and Louis used to swear at each other, Lou Karnaseka before tip-off?
1: He swore at me. I never swore at Louis. He, but he did it in a loving way. It was, you this and this and that but then he smiled and you know the game was on uh he was unique he he was fun just fun to be around fun to coach against uh he was a great one he was one of a kind really was but we had a lot of them john thompson you know we had a lot of of one-of-a-kind coaches in the big east in the beginning Rowley, uh the league meetings would last 12 hours, and we'd be yelling at each other for 11 hours, and then Dave Gavitt would come in, get us all calmed down, and we'd go to dinner together and laugh and talk. Then the next morning, we'd be back in there yelling and screaming at each other again the entire time. You <laughs> almost came to fisticuffs in a couple of those Big East meetings, but it was, uh, you know, that Rick Pitino joined the league, Gary Williams. Jim Calhoun so you know PJ so you had a bunch of people just had their own personalities and their own way of doing things. And, well
0: Rick told me once didn't he and Roley get in, like in a huge fight in the very first coaches yeah. meeting because yeah. Roley wanted a bigger cut of the sponsorship.
1: It was the ball deal we were going to get a league ball deal and it was supposed to be like 6,000 You know, which <laughs> a ways it was decent 6,000 for each coach and Roly said, no, no, I've been here, you know, this and that and Jim. And he threw me in it and Louie and said, we should get more money. And then Rick went. And then then I think I think Roley said to be quiet or something, you young whippersnapper or something to Rick. And Rick it, <laughs> it went crazy. And uh, John, Big, Big John was there and said, well, yeah, I'll go along with it. But then he got his own ball deal, which was about 10 times more. Uh, than we got. So <laughs> it finally was resolved, but it was a, a contentious, uh, contentious meeting. PJ was over there stoking the fires saying, yeah, Rolly, you should get more money.
0: <laughs> well, remember the game where you headbutted the associate commissioner, Mike Trangisi, when I think it was Michael Graham hit Dawkins at the end of that Big East championship? Yeah, he, he
1: threw a punch and then they, they <laughs> called it and then they took it back. So it was like, what's you know? We called the foul, and he threw him out of the game, and they took the foul away. They didn't throw him out of the game, and then like we got one foul shot. So it was like, really? It was supposed to be about six foul shots, and somebody out of the game. But you know,
0: do you think you could get that riled up again, or is those those days gone? Do you think you could get that angry, that riled up, that that annoyed?
1: Now, I've calmed down a little bit, but I, I could get close. I could, I could probably get pretty close.
0: Well, you did fall off the chair last year.
1: Yeah, I've fallen <laughs> off a few chairs in my life.
0: Yeah, that's, that <laughs> happens, you know.
1: I did that when I was young. You know, my wife says it's now that you're old, but I said, no, I did that when I was young, too.
0: <laughs> Fell off the chair. Oh, well, speaking of Julie, uh, I was at the party, the Kentucky Derby party in 1994. Now, my memory... Was that you were had a bunch of pillows around you and Julie? Everyone's seen her by now, but she's like the most beautiful woman in the history of Florida, where she was born, and Kentucky. And I believe you were wooing her by playing backgammon. That is my memory.
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent true. Uh, I just met her that night at a party at the Derby, and uh, you were there. A few people were there, and uh, I just hit it. We just hit it off and started talking and playing. I didn't even know how to play backgammon.
0: Of course you didn't know how to play backgammon. I mean. I faked it. Was that normally how you close the deal, backgammon?
1: No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a lot. We went to breakfast. You know, we went to stay. I was there for a few days, and we went with the family. And her mother looked at her and said, you know, he's just recruiting you.
0: What What is it like to go last year or this past year? You had a derby horse. Is that a completely different experience?
1: Well, you know, it was fun. It was fun. A friend of mine had put me in an investment group that, you know, we had a horse. It was a kind of a long shot uh, to get into the kind of. Pardon? No. Kind he was of. Real 50 long. to one. He was like 100 to one. But, uh, you know, we all went down there, a bunch of friends, and uh, it was fun. You know the Kentucky. It's the first time I've been back to the Kentucky Derby since I had met Julie.
0: Well, I tried owning a couple of horses with Rick Patino, who had a couple of great ones. He finished yeah. fourth in the Derby. Right, he had Hallery Hunter, A.P. Valentine, and uh, I went in, and lost ours money. were oh, lost beyond huge yeah. money for me. You know, not that much for Rick, but I finally called him and I said, Rick, I could have had the same experience. Driving down the Jersey Turnpike, throwing my money out the window.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Well, Rick, when he won, when he had the good horse, I think it sold for 20 million. I think Rick probably got 10 or something. He said he was still down 4 million.
0: Tell me your other pursuit is golf. Uh, Who was the best outside of you from those first Big East coaches? Who, Who did you know this is competition?
1: Well, in the beginning, I was the best golfer by far. There was really nobody in the Big East that really could play. Uh, you know, Roy Williams was always a good player, uh, but the younger guys started to get real good. There's some really good young golfers out there now, so I'm not even in the top 20 golfers.
0: Yeah, but how can young guys be good? Because you guys didn't recruit. You didn't have to spend all year recruiting so you well, could play golf.
1: That's why in the beginning, we we were pretty good. But then as recruiting changed and you got more into being on the road all the time, you know, the golf game suffered. But there's some really good players, young coaches that are really, really good players.
0: When you guys would uh, go to Ireland, for people who can't understand that all the coaches, wasn't it a lot of Big East coaches, you'd go to Ireland together, as opposed to, you know, we don't speak to them, that's not our school.
1: Dave Gavitt fostered that. We always talk, you know, we might fight a little, or we might have difference, but we always would get together, sit together for dinner, play golf together. And we went to Ireland together. Dave Gavitt put it together with Mike Trangisi. And, you know, it was me and PJ, Gary Williams. Um, you know,
0: Raftery.
1: Billy Raftery. And then we would always have some outliers. John Havlicek went a couple of times. Jimmy O'Brien went a couple times. We had the, the commissioner of the Big Ten join us one year, Jim Delaney. Uh, but Gary Williams was so brutal on him that he didn't want to finish. I think he actually <laughs> left the trip early because Gary, with Tom Jernstep brought him, who was with the NCAA, and he would constantly on the bus say, Who invited him? Meaning Delaney. And it was like he finally just. And enough, nobody ever talked like that to Jim Delaney, but you
0: know, no, but Gary was a character. I covered that game where he got in a punch fight with Martin Clark. Remember, I don't know if you ever knew they punched each other. I was there, that players. was my
1: game, I was there. It was,
0: it was your game. And you know what? Was the big east a blast? Is it it seems to me now like coaches are more corporate entities, but back then,
1: well, everything's changed, it's more corporate, I mean, it's different. It was completely do you know we remember when we started we were arguing about how much money we're making we're making twenty five thirty thousand dollars all in you know and you know it, it was just a different time different world I mean the pressure was the same but you really you know when you got when you were out of coaching after a couple of years you didn't have any money at least now if you coach for a while you make some money at least when you get fired or you get have to get out. You still you have some money, you know, so it's a little different. But yeah, I mean, when you coached then, you didn't coach for the money; you just coached because it's what you wanted to do. And uh, the, the I mean, all old coaches, old players, sometimes sound ridiculous, but it'll never quite be like that again. It's it was a unique time, and uh, the Biggies caught a wave with Patrick Ewing, and Pearl, and Chris Mullen coming in the first years. And uh, we just caught a big wave and just ESPN took it, the league to a playing in Madison Square Garden. Took the league someplace that I don't think anybody ever thought it could go except maybe Dave Gavitt. He started it. He was the guy that thought it could do it. And him and with Mike Trangisi, they kind of propelled the league along. And uh, it was a unique experience.
0: I always say, I think Dave Gavitt is the most underrated commissioner in the history of sports.
1: Well, he's not by me. He was—he made a league out of nothing into the best basketball league within four years.
0: Do you remember, was it true that he didn't want to go to Madison Square Garden right away? Remember, you played up in the Carrier Dome and you played. But uh, was that that he, he wanted to unleash the Big East when it was the right time? Yeah,
1: he 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 was the one that... Wanted to go there. We really were. I think coaches, you know, whether we—I don't think we really all wanted to go there. You know, we kind of like moving around a little bit. But he, Dave made the big decisions. You know, the ADs would say something in a meeting, and then Dave would leave and go back to problems and he'd do what he felt was right for the league. And you know, the ADs would like, "What? We didn't say that." Did we? No, you didn't. We
0: like the three-point shot.
1: Dave did what was right for the league. And, and he, if anything, he definitely favored coaches. But um without Dave Gavin, it never would have happened. I, I've said many times, guys like me and Jim Calhoun, even Louis, John Thompson never would have been in the Hall of Fame. It wasn't for the Big East and Dave Gavin. He 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 made it all possible. And he put television out there and got on television. The other leagues then had to follow. And the rest really is history. That's when the money started to come in because of all the exposure, ESPN, then the network, CBS had to get in it. Then the tournament started to grow because of all the games on TV. It all fit together. Yeah, I remember when I went to California to recruit the first time, the biggies hadn't been formed. And the biggest high school basketball high school in the state, they didn't even know what Syracuse was. Where are you from? Where is it? And is that Douglas? Two years later, no, that was that was Crenshaw. But two years later, Pearl played, and I went to California. and The baggage handler said, Hey, you're Pearl's coach when I got off the plane. You know, he said, I got my luggage. He says, Yeah, that's right. Everybody knew. And it was the Big East and the ESPN exposure.
0: Did, uh, wasn't that the first crossover dribble? I mean, you must have seen it before, but I never saw it till Pearl. He was as good In as college. anybody.
1: He was the best at it. Uh, I think Timmy Hardaway said he watched that. That's where he got it from. And Pearl was unique. He wasn't the best player, but he was the most exciting player still that I've ever seen. He, I mean, Steph Curry right there, but Pearl could do things with the ball that nobody could do.
0: Well, remember John Thompson said, if you, if you go up on him, he goes by you. If you stay in the zone, he goes by you. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> they had the best defensive team I've ever seen. I think they won the national championship of the year. Uh, the, uh, I think they held two teams to 41 or 43 points, really good, great teams. And Pearl had 29 and 10 assists against them. Uh, I mean, he almost beat them all by himself. He, he, they had Patrick and you know, I mean, they had Eric. They had uh, the best defensive guards in the league, Smith and uh, I mean, had Patrick Williams. Martin, Michael Graham. I mean, somehow Pearl would end up making a layup against that team, and you're like against their zone. And all of a sudden, Pearl's here and he's in there and that, he's making a layup. It was incredible to watch him. Um, I've never seen anything like him.
0: What defensive teams have you faced since Georgetown that you've thought, this is a great defensive team?
1: Virginia, Tony Bennett's a great defensive coach. They have the best defensive. I mean, he works at it. They, they, they're just religious in how they do it. Uh, Georgetown was the best defensive team I've ever seen up until, you know, some of Virginia's teams. But uh, they have; they weren't as physically talented as Georgetown. They could press your do anything to you. Um, but you know, Virginia is the only team that that compares defensively to what Georgetown was.
0: Well, one of the great changes right now that we're living through is the name, image, likeness. How do you think that will change recruiting?
1: Well, it's I like it for the players to get that opportunity. The problem is that. Alumni now really, boosters really, the way it's set up, can hire somebody from your program. You have no control over it. They could give them a million dollars, which has happened already in football. And what does that say to the rest of the players on the team who are not getting any?
0: But you know what? That I don't uh I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with it
1: because the problem in the NFL, the quarterback gets the most money, but everybody gets paid. Every player on the football team gets paid and a good lineman can still make eight or $10 million. That's when true. You are on a college team, football team, especially in 10 guys are the quarterback wide receivers running backs are getting money and you're the tackle and the guard in the center. And you're not
0: making any money. You're not getting any NIL. That I think that's a problem. Okay. Well, the way it worked in the NFL was Dan Marino and Steve Young and Elway would be selling all the t-shirts and the money, some of it would be going to the third string tight end. That's why Frank Bruno took them out and made their own quarterback club. So, you know, if you are making that money, um, you know, I'm sure buddy is already, he should be, you know, that why is it wrong that if you're the person selling the Jersey, with your name on it, why should you share that money?
1: Well, he can if he wants to, but he doesn't right. have to. He doesn't have to. And we have four international players who can't get any money. They can't do it. They can't get any NIL money.
0: But aren't you kind of saying that it would be appropriate for the person to share the money? But then it becomes maybe whoever... Point guard is, well, what do you mean? I had 10 assists. I should get more than.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the problem. How, how, do, you, how do you share it? And who do you share it with? And who gets what? And I don't want my, one of my players having to figure out, well, who am I going to help here? Am I going to help this guy or that guy? You know, uh, it, it leads, I think, to just a, a lot of difficulty. I really think it will lead that way down the road. Um, I think that there's ways of, you know, because there's no limits. uh, There's nothing to prevent anyone from making sure 10 players get money.
0: Well, that's why I was asking you about recruiting, because in two years, can't you see the SEC schools will have the best basketball teams?
1: I don't know. I, I mean, I think that. You're all as a coach, you have to adapt to whatever the situation is. Before, I mean, some people have. We know there's people that break the rules. We they've been caught paying people money, but it was I think on a smaller scale. It wasn't everybody. Trust me, it wasn't everybody. And uh, now I think everybody is going to be kind of in the mode of well, we have to figure out how our players can get NIO money. We can't do it. We can't arrange it, but it's got to happen somehow. So I think as we look move forward, it'll be. I don't know the answer. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I do know that it's legal to get money to players, and I'm not against that. Um, but when you see a million dollars going to a quarterback who doesn't play, how do you feel if you're on the football team blocking and tackling and doing all that every game and you're not getting a penny. So
0: I just wonder how it's going to you know traditionally schools in the northeast corridor they don't have the most wealthy alumni. I mean there are you have plenty of people from Manhattan, Long Island, but you know there are a lot of schools in that northeast corridor that don't have Alabama, Clemson money, uh, LSU and I just wonder how it will affect recruiting where a kid says, "Well, wait. Like you said, Alabama, the quarterback who doesn't play is getting a million dollars.
1: I don't know. I think that's something that has to play out. The schools in the Northeast do have the money, but they've never... Well, not Boston College. Boston College has people with a lot of money, but they've never invested that way. They've never right involved, and I don't think they ever will be. I think we're, we're heading toward a time... When, if, if you're not involved and you don't have opportunities for players at your school, you're not going to get players.
0: I, that's I exactly I think, where it's I going. I think that yeah. can happen.
1: And that's what we don't know. That's why, I, as much as I like the players getting this, it, it would have been nice if there were some restrictions, but you can't put restrictions. It's antitrust. You can't say that, my son, buddy, well, you can make 20000 but that's all. And anything else you make has to be shared or whatever. You can't do that. It's illegal. So what happens is some are going to get money and some are. And it's okay in the NFL that some players get money, get more money. That's America. That's the system. But the tackles are still getting paid. They're still making Right,
0: money. that's true. If you're Anthony Munoz, you know what you're doing, what you did for Boomer Esiason. So, yeah, that's...
1: The problem in college is this. Colleges don't make money. Syracuse, we make money in basketball, but it pays for all the other sports. So at the end of the day, we raise money to balance the athletic department budget here, just like they do at Boston College a lot of places. The problem is coaches make so much money, it stands out. It stands out. When I started, I made 25000 Nobody was saying I'm making too much money. Nobody was saying anything about paying the players. They got a seventy thousand fifty thousand dollar scholarship back then and so I wasn't it wasn't unusual now even though they get a seventy thousand dollar scholarship the head coach makes three or four two or, three, four or five million dollars that's an easy target you know we're head coaches we're older we've been around a long time I mean people at the top of their business do make a lot of money that doesn't mean the clerks make money at Merrill Lynch or Bank of America, the, the chairman of the board, the, the president, the chief operating officer makes $3 million. That doesn't mean everybody down the line is making that kind of money. They're not.
0: No. And isn't it what the market will bear? That's, you know, that's America. It's
1: the market. But I understand how people turn that on talk shows and say, well, the coach is making all the money. The player should get this money. And the players are 18 or 19 years old. And they're getting a $70,000 scholarship, which is pretty good. And we've arranged things now where they can get cost of attendance and they can get meals. So a player can get 12 dollars or 14 dollars $1,500 a month check. Now, which most people don't even know about. So that they can get some money. They do have spending money that they didn't have before. And now with NIL, they'll make some money it's just a question of how much and where, where will this end?
0: Or even, you know, for you, you said the, uh, maybe the backup power forward or whatever that they can go home now, if they're come from someplace that they could have their own little camp. I mean, there are lots of opportunities. Yeah,
1: that... It's something everybody can do a basketball. I think all of our players can go home to a camp, do a clinic, um, most of our players are going to do something with radio or something. They'll do some setup of things. I think most of our players will get something. Some are going to get more. That's just that's the way it works.
0: No, it's got lots of um, bear traps <laughs> that we don't know yet. Couple last things. Uh, tell me what what is the joy of coaching two sons?
1: Well, it's great to have them when they play well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, it's it's a great experience to be able to coach. I, I love coaching kids. any kid. I love to coach all of our players. I mean, it's fun to see them be successful. But I separate when I'm watching a game, I'm coaching my team, but and I'm trying to get every player to be successful because that's what we need to do. But I'm also a father. So I'm also watching the game a little bit and saying, how's my son doing? I hope he's doing good, too, as I'm watching the game. So I'm happy when we're both the team's playing well and my son's playing well. That's really good. When one or the other isn't, then I have a problem.
0: Tell me the uniqueness. You know, we saw it all the way back to Presmerovich. There have been a lot of father-sons. I'm sure you've talked to Jim Laranega, your buddy, about it. But is two sons, is that just, that's even a whole nother? element?
1: I think it's it, I don't think it changes much. It, 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 you know, I just I'm, I'm pulling for both of them instead of just pulling for one. But, uh, you know, they're both good players. And there's not too many coaches that have had two sons at the same time who were both good players. It's, an, it's unusual.
0: I don't even know schools that the BYU coach, he had two sons. That's the only one I can't think of his name in the early nineties. I think Yeah, there's
1: a few coaches. Steve Alford had two sons. I think, uh, um, uh, you know, Fran McCaffrey now has two sons playing for him. So uh, I think there's a few coaches that have had two, but usually, you know, either not at the same time or one was better than the other or something, but I, I'm fortunate to have two good sons, two good players. And their mother takes most of the credit for that.
0: (laughs) You're headed for, I love the tournament, uh, Lee Miller's tournament down in the Bahamas. And another great field. I mean, is it a trade-off that you're playing, you know, Michigan State's and, you know, really great schools? Baylor,
1: Connecticut, everybody's down there. I think there's six or seven of the eight teams will be in the NCAA tournament. And the last time we went to Atlanta, six of the eight teams went to the tournament. So yeah, it's a great tournament. Early in the year, find out what you're doing. Uh, we have a veteran team. We've got a lot of veterans. We've got two fifth-year seniors, a couple seniors, uh, a couple juniors, only one freshman. So hopefully we'll be ready early with the with the veteran guys.
0: Don't they don't they just like grandfather you into the Sweet 16 by now?
1: No, they 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 make it really hard for us to get into the tournament. And then we once we get in, we're okay. Well, thank you, Jim. I will see you in the Bahamas. Always nice talking to you for now this 45 years that we've been talking and you look a lot better than I do.
0: And that was my conversation with Jim Behan. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.